Volume One, Introduction of the Last Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gesine. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Introduction. I visited Naples in the year 1818. On the 8th of December of that year, my companion and I crossed the bay to visit the antiquities which are scattered on the shores of the bay. The translucent and shining waters of the calm sea covered fragments of old Roman villas which were interlaced by seaweed and received diamond tints from the checkering of the sunbeams. The blue and pellucid element was such as Galatea might have skimmed it in her car of mother-of-pearl, or Cleopatra, more fitly than the Nile, have chosen as the path of her magic ship. Though it was winter, the atmosphere seemed more appropriate to early spring, and its genial warmth contributed to inspire those sensations of placid delight which are the portion of every traveller as he lingers loath to quit the tranquil bays and radiant promontories of Bayi. We visited the so-called Elysian Fields and Avernus, and wandered through various ruined temples, baths, and classic spots. At length we entered the gloomy cavern of the Cumian Sibyl. Our Lazzaroni bore flaring torches which shone red and almost dusky in the murky subterranean passages, whose darkness thirstily surrounding them seemed eager to imbibe more and more of the element of light. We passed by a natural archway, leading to a second gallery, and inquired if we could not enter there also. The guides pointed to the reflection of their torches on the water that paved it, leaving us to form our own conclusion, but adding it was a pity, for it led to the Sibyl's cave. Our curiosity and enthusiasm were excited by this circumstance, and we insisted upon attempting the passage. As is usually the case in the prosecution of such enterprises, the difficulties decreased on examination. We found on each side of the humid pathway dry land for the sole of the foot. At length we arrived at a large, desert, dark cavern, which the Lazzaroni assured us was the Sibyl's cave. We were sufficiently disappointed, yet we examined it with care, as if its blank, rocky walls could still bear trace of celestial visitant. On one side was a small opening. Whither does this lead? we asked. Can we enter here? Questopoi, no, said the wild-looking savage who held the torch. You can advance but a short distance, and nobody visits it. Nevertheless, I will try it, said my companion. It may lead to the real cavern. Shall I go alone, or will you accompany me? I signified my readiness to proceed, but our guides protested against such a measure. With great volubility, in their native Neapolitan dialect, with which we were not very familiar, they told us that there were spectres, that the roof would fall in, that it was too narrow to admit us, that there was a deep hole within, filled with water, and we might be drowned. My friend shortened the harangue by taking the man's torch from him, and we proceeded alone. The passage, which at first scarcely admitted us, quickly grew narrower and lower, we were almost bent double, yet still we persisted in making our way through it. At length we entered a wider space, and the low roof heightened, 
but as we congratulated ourselves on this change, our torch was extinguished by a current of air, and we were left in utter darkness. The guides bring with them materials for renewing the light, but we had none. Our only resource was to return as we came. We groped round the widened space to find the entrance, and after a time fancied that we had succeeded. This proved, however, to be a second passage, which evidently ascended. It terminated like the former, though something approaching to a ray we could not tell whence, shed a very doubtful twilight in this space. By degrees our eyes grew somewhat accustomed to this dimness, and we perceived that there was no direct passage leading us further, but that it was possible to climb one side of the cavern to a low arch at top, which promised a more easy path, from whence we now discovered that this light proceeded. With considerable difficulty we scrambled up, and came to another passage with still more of illumination, and this led to another ascent like the former. After a succession of these, which our resolution alone permitted us to surmount, we arrived at a wide cavern with an arched dome-like roof. An aperture in the midst let in the light of heaven, but this was overgrown with brambles and underwood, which acted as a veil, obscuring the day and giving a solemn religious hue to the apartment. It was spacious and nearly circular, with a raised seat of stone about the size of a Grecian couch at one end. The only sign that life had been here was the perfect snow-white skeleton of a goat, which had probably not perceived the opening as it grazed on the hill above, and had fallen headlong. Ages, perhaps, had elapsed since this catastrophe, and the ruin it had made above had been repaired by the growth of vegetation during many hundred summers. The rest of the furniture of the cavern consisted of piles of leaves, fragments of bark, and a white filmy substance, resembling the inner part of the green hood which shelters the grain of the unripe Indian corn. We were fatigued by our struggles to attain this point, and seated ourselves on the rocky couch, while the sounds of tinkling sheep-bells and shout of shepherd-boy reached us from above. At length my friend, who had taken up some of the leaves strewed about, exclaimed, "'This is the Sibyl's cave. These are Sibylline leaves.' On examination we found that all the leaves, bark, and other substances, were traced with written characters. What appeared to us more astonishing was that these writings were expressed in various languages, some unknown to my companion, ancient Chaldee and Egyptian hieroglyphics, old as the pyramids. Stranger still, some were in modern dialects, English and Italian. We could make out little by the dim light, but they seemed to contain prophecies, detailed relations of events but lately past, names not well known but of modern date, and often exclamations of exultation or woe, of victory or defeat, were traced on their thin scant pages. This was certainly the Sibyl's cave, not indeed exactly as Virgil describes it, but the whole of this land had been so convulsed by earthquake and volcano that the change was not wonderful, though the traces of ruin were effaced by time, and we probably owed the preservation of these leaves to the accident which had closed the mouth of the cavern, and the swift-growing vegetation which had rendered its sole opening impervious to the storm. We made a hasty selection of such of the leaves whose writings one at least of us could understand, 
and then, laden with our treasure, we bade adieu to the dim Hypethric cavern, and after much difficulty succeeded in rejoining our guides. During our stay at Naples we often returned to this cave, sometimes alone, skimming the sunlit sea, and each time added to our store. Since that period, whenever the world's circumstance has not imperiously called me away, or the temper of my mind impeded such study, I have been employed in deciphering these sacred remains. Their meaning, wondrous and eloquent, has often repaid my toil, soothing me in sorrow, and exciting my imagination to daring flights, through the immensity of nature and the mind of man. For a while my labours were not solitary, but that time is gone, and with a selected and matchless companion of my toils, their dearest reward is also lost to me. Dimi e tenere frondi altro lavoro, credea mostrarte, e qual fero pianeta, ne invidio insieme, o mio nobil tesoro. I present the public with the latest discoveries in the slight Sibylline pages. Scattered and unconnected as they were, I have been obliged to add links and model the work into a consistent form, but the main substance rests on the truths contained in these poetic rhapsodies and the divine intuition which the Cumian damsel obtained from heaven. I have often wondered at the subject of her verses and at the English dress of the Latin poet. Sometimes I have thought that, obscure and chaotic as they are, they owe their present form to me, their decipherer, as if we should give to another artist the painted fragments which form the mosaic copy of Raphael's transfiguration in St. Peter's, he would put them together in a form whose mode would be fashioned by his own peculiar mind and talent. Doubtless the leaves of the Cumian Sibyl have suffered distortion and diminution of interest and excellence in my hands. My only excuse for thus transforming them is that they were unintelligible in their pristine condition. My labours have cheered long hours of solitude, and taken me out of a world which has averted its once benignant face from me, to one glowing with imagination and power. Will my readers ask how I could find solace from the narration of misery and woeful change? This is one of the mysteries of our nature, which holds full sway over me, and from whose influence I cannot escape. I confess that I have not been unmoved by the development of the tale, and that I have been depressed nay agonized at some parts of the recital, which I have faithfully transcribed from my materials. Yet such is human nature, that the excitement of mind was dear to me, and that the imagination, painter of tempest and earthquake, or worse the stormy and ruin-fraught passions of man, softened my real sorrows and endless regrets, by clothing these fictitious ones in that ideality which takes the mortal sting from pain. I hardly know whether this apology is necessary. For the merits of my adaptation and translation must decide how far I have well bestowed my time and imperfect powers in giving form and substance to the frail and attenuated leaves of the Sibyl. End of introduction. Recorded by Gesine in May 2008.